Black lady, black lady adulting. I got bills, I got school, I got, I gotta do. Got a husband with no kids. Every night we work on it. Black lady, black lady adulting. Bring your whole self to work because that way you can bring full ideas and the wholeness of your unique abilities. Bozama St. John. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Black Lady Adulting, a podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jokina Stone. I am so excited for today's discussion. We are going to be talking about Black women in the workplace. Um, this, this concept for me is really important because I always think about like how I navigate in the work setting. And I'm sure that many of Black women have challenges and successes in the workplace. And so I just kind of wanted to highlight our stories and some of the challenges that we might be facing Um, right now in this very unique time. And so for today's guest, I have a dear friend and also line sister. If y'all haven't noticed, I I really use my line sisters for everything because they're amazing. Um, And so I have a a dear friend and line sister who will be speaking with us today about women in the workplace. Her name is Brianna Ekandom. I'm going to read her bio because as always, I want to respect people's credentials and their stories Um, and really let y'all know that the folks that I'm bringing to the table are experts in their field. So Brianna serves as Chief Human Resources Officer for Providence Health and Services, leading one of the largest hospitals in Portland, Oregon metro area. Prior to her current role, she supported diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts for Providence's Oregon region and led a team to develop DEI training for employees across the Providence St. Joseph's health system. Before joining Providence, she worked in human resources for Comcast, Nike, and Adidas. She earned her undergraduate degree in economics from the University of Oregon and received her master's in business administration from Willamette University's Atkinson Graduate Management Program. Brianna is also the co-owner of Taylor Tees, a family-owned screen printing company. Her and her husband, Josh, print custom tees and also do some designing themselves. They use their business to express their creativity and to connect with organizations and businesses to support their fundraising efforts, events, and branding. Brianna is looking forward to life post-pandemic. Yes, Lord. She loves spending time traveling with her husband, her two-year-old daughter, and her one-year-old son. Welcome, Brianna Ikanda. Hello. Thanks so much for having me, Joaquina. I'm so excited about our, our conversation today. I'm so excited to have you. Um, when I thought about this, t- and I, I probably talked to you about this a long time ago. I was like, Brianna, yes. I want to do an episode about <laughs> women in the workplace and I want you to do it. Um, so I'm glad that we are finally making this happen. Um, let's let's dive in to the conversation. Great. Um, so a few years ago, McKinsey and Company, they started a research study on the experiences of women in the workplace. And part of that, you know, I guess part of that research was to help really uncover um, how women are treated, their experiences in the workplace, mainly in corporate spaces. Um, Over 600 companies participated in the study and it generated some interesting results. Well, in 2020, they did another study because we all know that 2020 was a very unique year. Um, And in that year, they did another study to examine the impact of COVID on women in the workplace. And here's some some things that they found um, that the COVID-19 crisis has been challenging for all employees, which, you know, makes sense. Everybody's experiencing the pandemic. COVID could push many mothers out of the workplace uh, because of different responsibilities in the home and in work. Companies are at risk of losing women in leadership. 
and Black women are less likely to feel supported at work during COVID-19. Companies need to better support Black women, and it's important to understand that intersectionality impacts women's experiences. So these few points that I just read, they're directly pulled from the 2020 Women in the Workplace report. So if you Google um, McKinsey and Company Women in the Workplace, I'm sure you can find this, uh, this, this information and pull it up and read over the report for yourself. They have some really interesting facts about what they found. So Brianna, in your experience, both personally and professionally, what are some of the major challenges Black women experience in the workplace? And then, like, do you do you agree with some of the findings? Because I know you have a copy of the report. Yes. So do you agree with some of the findings from the report? I feel like 2020 really shifted what my personal and professional life looked like. I feel like prior to that, I kept my life very much compartmentalized. I had outside activities outside of work that I I did and participated in my community, but I really didn't bring that to the workplace and how I showed up and, and really brought those connections to work. And I think being at home and working remotely and really having to work in a space that uh, would be kind of in that separate area for me has really allowed me to of bring more of myself to work. I think mm -hmm. I do agree with a lot of the um, points in the article, but I've also tried to look at what positive things have come out of 2020. And if I reflect on some of the comments that you made, like women not feeling supported in the workplace or really just having to make a decision about if I want to be in the workplace was something I had to figure out early in 2020. I know you mm. you mentioned in my bio, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old and I had my son on February 5th of 2020. So, so right this before. Is, yeah, this is right right going into the pandemic. So I was on, I was on leave for a couple months and then returning back to work and it's completely different. No one's working in the office. I don't really know what my place is in this space. And then to think about how I'm going to manage having two little kids at home through all this was really stressful. It was something that really had me considering, do I even want to go back to the workforce? Should I just stay at home and spend some time with my two little kids before, you know, there's a, a chance that I may not have that opportunity in the future? And I had to ask myself that, that hard question. And as I eventually returned back to work, I realized that there's a huge opportunity here to center the voices of Black women. Mm -hmm. And that became one of my um, motivators to be back in the workplace and to use my voice and influence to help support people of color, people in marginalized groups, and um, really help our employee experience as an organization. So I'll, I'll stop there, Joaquina, because there's there's a lot that I could share, but I, just personally and professionally, I feel like I've had a major shift in 2020 just about how I look at work, how I see myself in the workplace and how I wanna contribute. And um, I think my responsibility of that has become greater and I've really tried to 
live that out in the work that I do um, in my day job. Yeah. And I think you touched on something that is really important. So centering the experiences of Black women in the workplace. And so the report talks about how Black women are experiencing, or are experiencing, because we're not out of the pandemic yet, but are experiencing um, more challenges because of the COVID pandemic, because we are, you know, Black folks are disproportionately impacted by COVID, more Black folks are dying from the disease, unfortunately. You know, we have different responsibilities at home that require our energy and our time. We're also witnessing our Black brothers and sisters being killed in the streets. And so when you talk about centering the experiences of of Black women in the workplace, can you share more about about that? And like, what, what kind of sparked this the idea that, oh, this is a really unique time where I can center these voices. Can you share more about that? Yes, for sure. So right when I returned to work, it was shortly before the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and at this point, I wasn't in the role that I'm in now. I was a Mm -hmm. HR strategic program manager. So I wasn't part of the executive leadership team. I was I was doing work, but I wasn't um, necessarily interacting with executives on a day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And I remember our chief executive reached out to me and just said, hey, how are you doing? What, what, is, what has your experience been? How are you feeling? I know you just came back and had a baby. And she asked the question. And it's interesting because I I was kind of like, you know, we never had these sort of dialogues before. Why now? But I, I didn't let that stop me from sharing what my experience is and um, how, how these events were impacting me personally as an employee. And I also thought about people who may not be in the position that I'm in mm. to have that conversation with her. And how do we elevate those voices of people who might be um, frontline leaders, they might support our um, our food services areas, they may not have that exposure to senior leaders. So I, I started partnering with her and other leaders in the organization on how we can connect with people of color throughout every level of the organization. So one way of doing that was through some, some open forums that we have with folks and we just allowed, we, we worked with our, we call our employees caregivers. So if you hear me say caregiver, um, I'm referring to the employees at my organization, but we have caregiver resource groups. So we focused on our black caregiver resource group and started to have conversations with them. And it was great for our leadership team to hear the, the pain and the feeling and not just because of these outside events, but because of maybe some of the experiences that they've had at work personally around our work sites and how that impacts their overall experience as an employee. So I think it started with me understanding the influence of my voice and then trying to bring others along to uh, make sure their voices was being heard too by the people in positions to to make change and and do things about it. Yeah, and that's important because that's how that's how change happens. Like having someone who's mindful about the different experiences and identities of their employees and being able to advocate for them. And so I want to I want to step back a little well not necessarily step back, but step outside COVID. 
Because I yeah. think, you know, the conversation we're having is important and it is unique to the, the experiences that Black women have had during COVID. But when I think pre-COVID, Black women were still not supported in the workplace. Black women were still juggling challenges of police brutality, seeing that in the news, they're juggling their um, mental health as it relates to that and, you know, their lives outside of work. And I always come back to this idea of, you know, Black women's labor, labor and how that's been taken advantage of, you know, even since enslaved Africans were brought to America. Mm -hmm. And as we continue working, like I think about my, myself as a Black woman in my labor, and I will never forget uh, one of my supervisors, he told me, he was like, man, I, I always give Jokina tasks because I know she's going to get it done. And so I think about, you know, the, I, I think I said this on another podcast episode, a quote that I saw on, you know, social media. It was like, you know, Black women aren't being hired because they're Black and they're women. They're hired because they get shit done. Yeah. And I do think Black women get shit done. But I also feel like companies can take advantage of that labor. And so when I think about my former supervisor, who I, who I adore, him saying, like, I always give tasks to Jokina because I know she'll get it done. Well, at the time, I was the lowest paid manager on the team. And I was the only woman on the team, only, the only woman manager on the team. And so it sounds all well and good. They're like, oh, I'm going to give it to her because she's going to get it done. But what about my colleague who is a senior manager who makes more money than me? Shouldn't you be giving that to him? Shouldn't, shouldn't you also trust that he's going to get it done? Mm-hmm. And so can you speak to, and this can be just like your personal or professional, professional opinion, but the experiences and let me, let me backtrack again, because I also recognize that like we can't speak for every single Black woman in right. the workplace. Every right. Black woman is not going to have the same experience. But when I think about my experience and when I think about um, a number of Black women that I know who will complain about like, oh, I carry the team or I do X, Y, and Z, how can companies be more mindful, more thoughtful about supporting Black women and making sure there's gender equity? in the workplace. So if black women are going to have more work, they need to be paid more. Or, you know, how can, how can companies be more mindful of those things? I know that's a loaded question, or it's a lot in one question. Yeah, I think where I would start with that, Jokina, is looking at the data. Uh, That's a very easy, objective way to understand where black women are being valued from a, a dollar and financial perspective from from an organization. So organizations have this information. And I think the question about pay equality has continued to come up and it's becoming more top of mind. I would say not as top of mind as these racial issues that have come up in 2020, but it still is, is a huge concern, especially if you think about it from a women of color perspective, I think we've made it a long way in terms of women in general, but the the thing I see pretty common is diversity measures that just look at gender and it's not segmented by, uh, by race or ethnicity because mm-hmm. there's still this disparate experience in terms of pay for women of color. So I would start with the data. And then I also think it has a lot to do with the culture of the organization. If if you have 
leadership represented across the organization by women of color, I think we're great advocates for her, ourselves. We're, we're the best advocates for ourselves. We mm-hmm. often hear about allyship, but that only gets us so far. So I think two things, one thing would be looking at the data and also um, making sure it's a priority for your, your senior leaders. And you have to figure out a way to do it in a way that doesn't diminish the value of Black women. And there's not the perception that, oh, Joaquina is making more now because they're doing all this gender equality work. And it's not, you know, it's not because she's great and does amazing work. It's just, we have to pay her more now because it's one of our goals. So the goals really have to transcend to the culture. It can't just be a number or um, a a metrics that you're trying to achieve. It has to be something that is is centered in the values and the um, the culture of the organization. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Like meaningful, making sure that you know your espoused goals and your enacted goals line up, and that it's meaningful, and you're not tokenizing. Because I, I feel like that happens to minoritized groups a lot, where it's just this idea of like, oh, we're just going to hire them because they're you know, whatever, check off whatever box. Um, right. And so if the same concept applies, like, no, not not just, you know, oh, we're going to pay these women more because that's what the trend is. But no, because they bring value to the workplace and they they show up, they get stuff done. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's key. That is very key. You mentioned um, being advocates for ourselves. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I do think for some women, it is difficult to advocate for ourselves, whether that be for salary, whether that be for, you know, maybe a flexible work schedule because of, you know, in-home obligations, maybe you're taking care of a, a child, a parent, whatever. So can you, can you give some tips on how we, how we can advocate for ourselves in the workplace? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I find myself in conversations with friends and family about this quite a bit like how do you how do you negotiate how do you get what you deserve for this work so part of my background was actually specifically in compensation so understanding for a specific industry what jobs are are paid and what that range is and depending on what organization you work for some people are more transparent with with those ranges than others, but there are tools online and ways that you can kind of find out what what the range is, either through talking to people informally and just kind of understanding where they're at and if they know what the range is. So I, I start with one, understanding what the position is, what the responsibilities are, and I usually have the job description as a reference for that. And if I can find that job online or something comparable, seeing what the range is, and then having some some dialogue with people in those positions. And I, I find, especially when I'm talking to other Black women or people who might be in, in marginalized groups, that they'll be transparent about pay if it's going to help support you to get to where you need to get if you're entering an organization. So having a conversation, kind of understanding what you should be asking for and 
when you get to that point of uh, the conversation, when you're being offered the position, I think that is the hardest part. So my recommendation here is to have some, have some, practice it, have some test conversations with a friend, with a partner, and just say, hey, my, I'm bringing this experience to the table and I'm expecting to be in, in this range. Is that something that the organization can do? And a lot of times there is flexibility on pay and it may not be something that you can influence a whole lot in the base of your pay, but they may be able to give you a sign-on bonus as another option. There might be stock options as another form of compensation. You might even be able to negotiate a more flexible work schedule as in lieu of more compensation. So I think just uh, in summary, I would think about what's important to you. Sometimes it's not just the dollar amount, but if flexibility and autonomy is very important to you and you want to be able to work from home indefinitely, that might be something you consider in negotiating. If you do want a higher salary, you have to ask for it. I have had experiences where I didn't do a great job of negotiating for myself or having having that conversation with the hiring manager and that person came back to me and said, hey, you're, you're a little off from where we are with the rest of our team. This is what I was planning on offering you. And when that happened, I was like, what am I doing to myself? So ever since that happened, I've negotiated every transition um, internally or going to a new um, position because you have to do that. And I encourage anyone I can to um, go through that negotiating process and I think the other piece of that, Jokina, too, is if you're in a position, like, like you mentioned, you were in a position, you were taking on these tasks and projects, and you're aware of another colleague that is in a higher position and maybe not doing as many projects, put together your business case, put mm -hmm. together a list of the projects you've done and how you successfully implemented them and led them and, and put your ask out there. There's often a cycle in terms of timing on when pay changes can happen. So really think about that as you have these conversations, try to do them as proactively as possible. So, you know, if merit is coming, you could have a conversation, but there are off cycle and I might be getting in real HR uh, speak now, but there are opportunities outside of just the standard merit process that you can get either bonuses or, um, or increases in pay. So I would just say, don't be afraid to ask the question. I think lastly, before I close out on this, I think another um, key piece of this is you have to be doing good work. So yes you're not just gonna be compensated to be compensated. You have to have receipts basically <laughs> that, you've been, um, that you've been doing the work and you can speak to it and, and the value that you're adding to the organization. And I think that this is a very difficult position to be in sometimes as black women to have this conversation and to and to push on this, but it, it's, it's necessary. Other people do it. 
Like it's, it's not taboo. Like it's part of the process. So, and the more you do it, the more you practice, the more you get comfortable with it, the more success you'll have. You won't always get what you want. I always say shoot a little high and then you can kind of negotiate into um, probably closer to where you want to be. But it, it's something that works and that recruiters and hiring managers are prepared to do as part of the part of the process. And those were some gems. Those were some okay, gems. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I'm, I was listening to you like, man, I thought back to some, you know, interviews that I've had where they've asked and I'm, you know, typically for the most part, a pretty confident person, but yeah. it's always like when they get to the, what's your salary re- requirement? Where I just like retreat into a shell and I'm just like, uh, um, maybe, <laughs> you know, and, but you know, that is part of the process and they know like they have a set budget of what they're willing to pay. And so if you say something that's too high, they're going to reel it back in. And so that, right. you know, that really stood out to me because I think as women, um, especially as black women, we have, I know I have had some challenges advocating for myself, especially as it relates to pay. There are other things that I was like more confident in. So like folks know I'm working on my PhD and I was like, well, I need to alternate schedule because I need to go to classes. And so I advocated for that easy. But like when it comes to pay, it's just like, uh, uh. <laughs> and so you really, it is something that we have to get comfortable with. And I think what makes it challenging is that some like money is often in general seen as like a taboo subject. Like you're not supposed to know what people make and some jobs don't even post like what the salary range is for that position. And I think that part of the process can make it feel daunting and difficult to discuss because it's like, well, I don't even know what they're gonna pay, but I'm gonna still go on this interview. And so hopefully they'll pay what, you know, I'm asking, but I I also, so I I say all that to say that I think that as black women, we have to do our part and learn to advocate for ourselves. And I also hope that organizations will be more transparent about what they're able to offer because don't get me to the end of an interview process to tell me you're going to pay me $35,000. Like you've just wasted my whole time. You know what I mean? And so, and that's, and that's not to say that 35,000 is not good. That's just not for good for where I'm at in my life and in my career. So, so yeah, I think we definitely have to, um, to practice. And then the point about being in a job, because I think that's the part, you know, where it can be complicated and tricky for some women, like being in your position and advocating for a raise or advocating for a title change because of your work. And so I love the fact that you said you need to have your receipts already. Like you need to say like, these are the things that I've done. Here are the, you know, I'm I'm quantifying, you know, what it is that I've done. And um, these are my receipts. And I think that part can be tricky because I think people feel like, you know, once you're in a job, you just gonna get what you get. Like you get the pay that you get and maybe you'll get a raise during, you know, the evaluation process and maybe not. And, you know, there's no, there's no room for negotiating once you're in a position. And so I love that you're like, no, you need to assess where you're at and what you've done and bring those receipts to the table. Right. I'm, I'm going to go back to the interview process uh, for a quick second. Sure. And so how soon should you, like, if you are in the interview process and it is one of those positions where they haven't listed publicly what the salary range is for the position. How soon should you be asking what the salary is? That's a really good question, Joaquina. And 
I would say, you know, I, I want to go in knowing around before I have any sort of interview, knowing something. So that's when I do my personal research. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're going for a director of a um, whatever, a director anywhere at a company and and Glassdoor has a lot of great information, salary.com. Um, also, if you're going considering a company or an organization, add people on LinkedIn, see if you can have some conversation with people to understand the culture and um, maybe you'll form some sort of quick relationship to have some dialogue with them. But I want to kind of understand like something before I go into, I'm never going into any situation like that blind. So I would say typically the interview process starts with a recruiter and the recruiter is awesome because they are motivated to get someone hired into the role. They also are working closely with the hiring manager. So they're a great person to talk to about like salary ranges up front. I wouldn't, if I was having my first interview with the actual hiring manager of the role or a panel of people, I would never talk about pay in that setting. I would limit it to just the recruiter because that is really the conversation that they own. And I know organizations are different. This is just typically how it works where you'll work with the recruiter and not directly with the hiring manager in the process. So they they are a great person to ask that question. And typically they will ask you, what are your salary hopes before setting up an interview with anyone? Because it would be a big waste of everyone's time if you're way, way higher than what they're planning on offering. So I would, I would say that would be my proactive work, but when I would really want some clarity is, if I've been advanced to kind of a second round of interviews. So they, I know they're interested in me or they're interested in you. So there's, there's some, uh, there's some interest on their end and you find the job interesting and intriguing. That's when I would have some more conversation um, going into that. So I'll be prepared to think about what my response is once I offer comes my way. And then lastly, Joe, for, for even when you get the offer, there's opportunity to negotiate. So just because they, they sent you a letter and said, Hey, I want to offer you this job at this, at this salary, you have time. I always encourage people to take at least a day or two and just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to review this and I'm going to talk to my family, do what I need to do. And I'll follow up with you. But that's your opportunity to kind of weigh the pros and cons, do your research, look at their benefits, look at look at the total compensation package, because, you know, the salary, the base salary is one piece, but there's usually a lot more that comes to joining the organization. So really make sure you're not giving up your dream job for a thousand dollars over the course of the year. So you, 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 there's a there's a line between trying to negotiate for the salary that you want and then negotiating yourself out, out of a job. And I think sometimes it get sometimes in the negotiation process, I know I felt like 
oh, well, maybe if I ask this question, they'll, they'll rescind the offer. Or they want, they'll think I'm greedy and won't want to offer me the job anymore. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not the case, but I, I've had that feeling. But, um, you know, have that conversation, but also know if this is really the job, like from a work-life balance location, maybe your commute mm-hmm. is shorter and maybe you, um, maybe you aren't next to your favorite coffee shop. So you won't have to worry about spending an extra $5 a day. Like think about everything that might contribute to the experience and consider, consider that in your decision-making too. Yeah. I think that's crucial. Cause I, I think that, you know, there are ways that like, yes, if you have a base salary that you want to make, yes, definitely try to advocate for that. But also thinking about, okay, benefits, what healthcare benefits? Because there's some jobs whose their healthcare benefits are amazing and there's other jobs where they're trash. So you right. might be getting the pay that you want, but then you're going to be coming out of pocket a lot more because they don't cover everything for your healthcare that you would hope. So those kind of benefits you talked about, you know, whether or not you can work remote, what professional development opportunities are there? Are, are they going to send you to conferences? Like, mm-hmm. um, are they going to pay for trainings for you so that you wouldn't have to come out of pocket? So I definitely think that thinking about those benefits in addition to like, okay, is this in the location that I want to be in? Like you said, is it next to a coffee shop where I'm going to be spending, you know, X amount of dollars a day? And so I think those are all things that we have to consider when we're examining an offer. And I think sometimes it, at least for me, because I've been in positions in the past where I felt, you know, I, my labor has been taken advantage of and, you know, I wasn't paid on par with my male colleagues. Sometimes I get tunnel vision, like, nah, you, y'all gonna pay me this much. I don't right. care. Like, right. you know, but it is important to think outside of that, uh, you know, and, and sometimes like the organization you might be working for, would be great to have on your resume. Like, oh, you know, yeah. and so it's not like, oh, just take, you know, a 15% cut because you just want to be at this organization. I'm not saying that, but never I never take a cut. Never. Never. <laughs> never. Never downgrade. Never. <laughs> um, and so I do think that, um, but I, I think that those are all factors that we should mm-hmm. consider. Yeah, I, I think one big one that we haven't touched on yet is your leadership. So mm-hmm. the one of the big indicators and data shows this of your experience as an employee is who you work for. So if the manager of the new organization, if you guys hit it off, if you heard great things about this person, if they're supporting, centering the voices of Black women and people, Um, you know, that might be a draw within itself, because I think if someone is open to hearing your perspective and valuing your perspective, that that's intangible. Money is definitely important. And I advocate for that and that people are paid um, for their skills. But I also think there's a lot of value in knowing that you're supported by your leader And when you go out and you do your work, that that person has your back and that they want to see you succeed, even if it's not on their direct team. So um, that leadership support and their support in advancing your career and understanding what you want to do is huge because, you know, you may you may have wanted a twenty thousand dollar pay increase. Right. So you take a role, but there might be opportunities that 
this leader can help expose you to to different areas where you'll be in a new job that's a $30,000 pay increase in the next 18 months. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to think really strategically about these steps that you take, even if you're not getting exactly what you want at this juncture, like what's the next step and who do you have who can support you with that um, and getting to where you want to get ultimately. So that that's a real critical piece that I found if you don't have that sort of relationship and support, that can also be a barrier to you accomplishing your your professional and uh, financial goals. Yeah, and I think that is key because people, I mean, you hear people say people don't work for organizations, they work for people. And I, I feel like that really ties back to the leadership of your, your manager, um, the, like you said, the experiences they can expose you to, how they professionally develop, develop um, you. And I think when you have that kind of mentorship and leadership from your supervisor, that is something that is important and can help your career long-term, maybe more than just like a few extra coins might help you exactly. in the short term. Exactly. So when you think about um, companies and organizations, what can they do to better retain Black women? So we've talked to, you know, we talk a lot about money, but what are some other things that can happen within the workplace that can help Black women to be retained in some of these professional in corporate spaces? I think representation is, is critical. So when you, when you look at the C-suite roles or however your organization is set up, if you're um, at a learning institution or whatever, when you look at people in power and in these positions, are you represented there? Because that's a true indicator if there is a path for you to get there. So I, I think just that within itself is, is one key thing. And it's not so much just putting diverse people in, in these roles, uh, that, that should happen regardless, but it's them having the support that they need. And it can't just be, if you do have a person of color on your leadership team, the only representation shouldn't be a diverse, a chief diversity officer role. Right. Uh, because that within itself causes complications, really putting that, that responsibility on the sole person of color within your organization. So I, I think one other thing is looking at talent planning in an organization. So many organizations do these um, talent review processes where they look across the organization at who's high potential talent, like who are the next leaders of the organization. And with a lot of times, just because of how institutions and systematic racism is set up, people of color aren't necessarily like on the bench and ready to go be because of that. So a lot of organizations have to look a step deeper or maybe two steps deeper and identify uh, that talent and make sure that they're fostering and supporting them through either mentorships or um, exposure to different projects and, and people and experiences. But just because you don't have 
people of color on your bench doesn't mean you don't have rarely talented people of color in your organization. So I think a tool to do that is looking a couple levels deeper within your organization. And also when you're looking externally at folks, making sure you have a diverse slate of candidates as you are hiring and looking at executive level positions. So that's, there's many facets of that. So I think those are a couple. Lastly, I would say, how do you foster that sense of community within your organization? So I'm a new Black leader that's joining and maybe I'm in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon. So there's often a lot of people who are transplants and relocating to Oregon. Um, Maybe you have a program within your organization that allows you to connect that person with other people of color. That's not weird. You know, it's not like, oh, we have a new black employee. Let's introduce them to Brianna. Um, So like, how do you set up that infrastructure where people feel supported and it's not, um, it's not awkward. You know that they'll need someone to connect to and talk to that understands the environment from a black woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that people are uncomfortable saying or mentioning. And it's, it's not like you're assuming that those people will be best friends and hit it off, but uh, it's great to just have those things in place and think about those dynamics as you bring people in, especially black women. So those are a, um, a couple things that I think companies could do to better support. I think those are kind of more on like the proactive way. There's also, there's also things that are just happening that are terrible that shouldn't happen that we need to interrupt. So I think education in that space for our, our leaders and senior leaders is another way to interrupt those microaggressions and just negative experiences that Black women have in in the workplace overall. So I would say it's a multi-pronged approach, but thinking about like how you can really make a positive impact, but also help interrupt some of those really negative behaviors and cultural norms that just happen um, because of how our institutions are structured. Yeah, and I, I think that that last piece about it being a multi-pronged approach is important because there are definitely some proactive things. And I think there are some reactive things that can happen, unfortunately. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, looking at the office culture, does this culture support Black women, you know, and other marginalized groups as well. Uh, but I think that oftentimes, because, you know, some people work in spaces that are predominantly white, some people work in predominantly Black spaces, and then there's, you know, a whole host of things in between. And so I think sometimes when there's a removal of one, one social identity that's rooted in, you know, oppression. So if we remove the fact that it's a predominantly white organization, and maybe this is a minority serving organization or whatever, mm-hmm. we think that, you know, issues of racism won't exist. And so we're all fine, but there's still issues of sexism. And how do you address that? And how, mm-hmm. what, what does the, how is the office culture fostering or not fostering that? And so I think it's important to look at the different ways to approach how to better support Black women in the workplace. So I, I love that you said that. Um, we are coming up on time. And so the last question that I want to ask that I really love asking because, you know, get some, some interesting results. I started implementing, you know, asking the same questions to each of my guests. Um, 
And so I would love to know, what do you love, Brianna, about being a Black lady adulting? I think what I love is that I'm able to create the life that I want. Mm. You know, I think a lot of, I've had, I've had the perspective at points in my life that, you know, I'll get married, I'll have a couple kids, I'll work, I'll be successful. And this is what success looks like. But I've really challenged myself as a Black lady adulting to think about many decades from now, what do I want to look back on and and reflect on my life? And I don't want to be stuck feeling like, oh, I had to work all these hours and not spend time with my family or, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't start my own business. I couldn't travel. I couldn't, I couldn't do a lot of things because of whatever constraints that I've put on myself. So I've really appreciated a shift in my perspective as a Black lady adulting that I can do anything that I want to and that I can do anything that I set my mind out to do. I, I have to put mechanisms in place and different things in place so I don't completely burn myself out. But I love the fact that I'm a chief HR officer by day. I create cool t-shirts uh, on the weekend and that I have two little kids that I'm able to spend a lot of time with on a regular basis and also able to connect with my community and still serve in areas that I want to. I have, I feel like I have no limits to that. And I love that about Black Lady Adults. Yay, and I love that for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being on the show. I am excited uh, about how this will impact women. Hopefully it has a positive impact on some of my listeners. So thank you for your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I love your show. I've heard every episode and it inspires me to hear other Black women and their experiences. And now for the My Girlfriends segment. On today's episode of Black Lady Adulting, we talked about Black women in the workplace. While this is an important conversation to have, I will be remiss, and as Maya's mom would say, classist and egregious, if I didn't point out that this conversation was rooted in privilege. Brianna and I are both college-educated women who are fortunate to be able to negotiate our salary, choose where we want to work, and decline positions that don't meet our needs. I recognize the privilege our education and class status have afforded us. Based on data from the 2018 Bureau of Labor Statistics, only 25% of the U.S. are actually able to work remotely. That means there are segments of Black women who don't identify with our experiences, who aren't able to work from home, they don't have the opportunity to, to negotiate their salaries, and there are certain groups of women who are doing what they need to do to put food on the table. These women are in various positions professionally. They might be your cashiers at your local grocery stores. They might be women who are a part of the custodial team in your office. They may be food service workers. They work in warehouses and sort the packages we buy on our lunch break from our home offices. They may be women who are invisible to us. This segment is dedicated to them, the black women who are sometimes deemed invisible. There are black women who are on the front lines who are exposed to COVID daily because they can't take a day off from work. They can't take sick leave. They can't work from home. They can't get a new job just because the one that they're in doesn't value them. This group of black women is probably one of the most vulnerable groups. 
They work long hours, some of them make minimum wage, and are dealing with other perils of life, such as mental health challenges, access to health care, all while being exposed to COVID, and are juggling their home responsibilities, like helping their kids learn from home. They face job insecurity, job displacement or disruption because of the pandemic. Black women and other workers who are in this position deserve better. All workers need access to a safe working environment, access to health care and unemployment benefits. They needed this before the pandemic and they definitely need it now. The authors of the Combahee River Collective, written by a black lesbian womanist organization, wrote, If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free, since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. When they penned this, they were talking about all black women, women from lower socioeconomic statuses, genderqueer black women, black women with disabilities, all black women. I've said before that the liberation of black people globally is tied to the liberation of black folks on the continent. Well, today I extend that statement, or I guess I add a little bit of nuance, and I say that the liberation of black people globally is inextricably linked to the liberation of black women globally, all black women. And even though I may not know the struggle of every single black woman because we are not a monolith, I do know that every single one of us matters. <laughs>